As we work our way through Colossians, Pastor Pete is preaching passage by passage. Colossians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 15 through verse 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Excellent singing this morning. In that passage that Pastor Will just read, towards the end there, it said a phrase that in him he might be preeminent. Talking about Jesus Christ. That's not a word we use often, but the idea of that phrase is that Christ should be first place. So let me ask you a question. Why should Christ be first place in your life? Now the passage that Pastor Will just read is verses 15 through 20. I'm just going to preach 15, 16, and 17 today. But 15, 16, and 17 are going to lay the groundwork of why Christ should be preeminent in your life. Why Christ should be first place. And the reason for that is what we're going to talk about today is that Christ is supreme. Now we've been using this uh, presentation, uh, this title, uh, ever since we began this series. And, and here is the reason why, is because of this passage. Christ is supreme. What does that mean? Well, first of all, what's the word supreme mean? Okay, supreme means first or highest in rank uh, or first or highest in quality. Uh, how many of you have ordered a pizza recently and asked for a supreme? Anyone? Okay, some people. Um, yeah, I don't like some of the stuff on the supreme, so to me it's not highest in quality, but maybe to you it is. It's the best is what they're claiming. Okay, but what do I mean when I say a supreme ruler? A supreme ruler is one who is uh, over all and, and he has control of everything. And what we're talking about is Jesus Christ is supreme. And therefore, because of that, he deserves our best. Uh, maybe you have uh, seen uh, this uh, painting before. Uh, you probably have. It's Leonardo da Vinci's famous masterpiece called The Last Supper. Uh, I heard an interesting story about this painting. It was told that Leonardo da Vinci, as he got to the end of the painting and he finished, he decided to bring in some friends to critique it, to tell them if they saw anything wrong with it. And so he had one of his friends come in to criticize the work, and the friend looked at it and he said this. He said, the most striking thing that I see in the picture is the cup that Jesus is holding. The artist immediately took a brush and paint and covered over the brush, over the cup, excuse me. He said this, 
Nothing in my painting should attract more attention than the face of my Savior. That is the idea of being preeminent. That is the idea of being supreme. Because Jesus is supreme, nothing else should distract us from Him. We must get rid of anything that keeps us from glorifying Christ first and most. But often in our lives, Christ is marginalized. Often in our life, other things become a greater priority. Schoolwork, hobbies, family commonly take first place. In these verses over the next two weeks, Paul gives us the reason why Christ should be first in our life. He talks about how special Christ is and how he must be preeminent. Now, just as a review, remember, this book was written to a group of believers in the town of Colossae. Okay, and as I have said, in the town of Colossae, they were struggling with some heresies that were being taught. And one of those heresies was something called Gnosticism and had crept in the church and was trying to marginalize Christ. It was trying to minimize who Christ was and his effect on the church and what he had done. This, this, uh, there was a combination of heresies of mysticism, Jewish legalism, and Greek philosophy that had kind of blended together to make this wrong type of teaching. The heresy taught that Christ could not be God. See, their belief was based on a Greek philosophy that taught that the spirit uh, uh, of man or the spirit of a being is good, but the flesh or the body is evil. And therefore, God could not have become man because God could not mix the good part of God, the, the, the spirit, could not have mixed with man because that would have created pure evil. It taught that Jesus also was, was an angel and, and that receiving him was not enough for salvation. One that had to have a new revelation in order to be saved. And that's where that term Gnostic comes in. That is a word that means to know. And what they taught was in order to be saved, one must know some secret knowledge that only the Gnostics had experienced. See, the problem was, is this heresy that Paul was addressing was attacking the very foundation of the gospel because it was attacking Jesus. It was attacking who Jesus was and what, what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And so uh, uh, that was something Paul had to address. Now, there is no, in, a, in the same sense, Gnosticism today, but there are remnants of it. Even in our culture, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, do not believe that Jesus is God. They believe he's a created being, an angel. There's a similar idea in Mormonism. But even in Christianity, uh, in liberal Christianity today, it attacked the deity of Christ, saying that he was a mere man. You talk to religions around the world, and you bring up the Jesus Christ, and what are we told over and over again? He was a good man. He was a righteous man. He was even a good teacher, but he is not God. And that is the idea of what Paul is addressing. See, if Jesus is not God, then we have a big problem. But if Jesus is God, if he is the only way to heaven, and if we declare him Lord of our lives, then that is not just a matter of belief. It should impact our daily lives. If Christ is all of these things, then he must be first place in our life. Now, we're going to get to that more next week. This week, I want to establish that he is supreme. 
So before we look at this passage, let's open a word of prayer. God, we are thankful for this text. Such a beautiful text talking about your son. Lord, so many in this world want to view Jesus as something less than he really is. And as believers, we need to understand who he really is in order for us to have a right understanding of our interaction with him. Lord, I pray you'll help us as we look at this passage that we'll clearly understand that. I pray that you will guide my words. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Three aspects that I want to look at about Jesus Christ in this text. First of all, Jesus Christ is the visible image of God. Here in this passage, if you look at verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, He, that's He, is referring to Jesus Christ. We see that as we go back to what we talked about previously in the previous verses. But He is the image of the invisible God. Now, that word image is, a different, is an interesting word. It's, uh, it has multiple meanings, and so we have to understand what was Paul using in this passage. The uh, coin uh, word that he was using is uh, seen in three main ways throughout the, the Bible. And I want to look at uh, the New Testament, and I want to look at those three. First of all, we have uh, the uh, image as in, in something inscribed on something. Uh, we see that mentioned in, in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus is teaching and he says to them whose likeness or whose image, it's the same word there used, whose image or inscription is this? And they said it is Caesar's. Now, they saw Caesar on the coin. If you were to take out a coin or a dollar bill uh, of our money today, you would see an image of someone a president, a leader of some kind in the founding of our nation, and you would see that image. Now, was when Jesus was talking to them, was Caesar physically on the coin? No, obviously not. Okay? It's, it's a, only a representation of a real thing. It's a representation or a picture. It could be any number of things. If I uh, were to pull out my driver's license right now and I would show you, that's an image. Okay? It's not actually me. And so the idea here of this first kind of image that we see in Matthew is one that is a representation of a real physical person. And so Paul is not saying here that Jesus was a representation. He's saying more than that. The second definition of this word, image, in this passage is something that is, uh, is, is like but not an exact copy of. Say, so what do you mean by that? How many of you have children who look similar to you? Or, how many of you have children who act similar to you? None of you? You're a bunch of liars, because <laughs> some of you do. Watch your kids, they act like you, okay? We do. How many of you ever heard this phrase? Someone would say, oh man, he's a spitting image of his dad. Now, I don't know what that means, because it sounds kind of gross, uh, but I think we get the idea. The idea is he's like his dad, that he, he is in the image of his father. Now that's interesting because when we look in the Bible, the Bible tells us in Genesis that we were made in the image of God. Now that's different than when it says that, that, God, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so, but we get that idea. Man is in the image of God. What does that mean? John MacArthur said it this way, man is not the perfect image of God. Humans are made in God's image in that they have rational personalities. Like God, they possess intellect, emotion, and will by which they are able to think, feel, and choose. 
We humans are not, however, in God's image morally because He is holy and we are sinful. Nor are we created in the image of God essentially. We do not possess all of His attributes such as His omniscience, His omnipotence, His immutability, or His omnipresence. We are human, not divine. We have a likeness to God, but we are not the exact replication of God. We are not the exact image of God. And so we see that idea of image, that's another way of looking at it. But the third, and I think the true definition of what is being talked about in this passage uh, of this coin or, or image of God is an exact representation and manifestation of God. If you think of it this way, God is invisible as, as Paul describes him. And so Jesus then is the visible image of the in- invisible. Jesus is the exact representation of the God that we cannot see. Jesus allows us to see who God is. Now let's look at a a couple other verses in Colossians that even speak to this in a greater way, and we'll get to these at other times. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. Pastor Will read this a moment ago. It says, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ, he had everything that is God. There's nothing lacking. We can't say, well, yeah, he, he didn't have this. No, in him all the fullness of God dwelt. Look at Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. It says there, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In God, in Jesus, all deity, all of God dwells. Jesus Christ himself Uh, talked about this when he said in John chapter 14 verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Philip was asking about seeing God and and all this and, and, and Jesus responds and says, Hey, Philip, here I am. So when it says in this passage that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, it is telling us a very strong statement. It is not saying that he is an angel. It is not saying just that he was just a good man or a good teacher or a moral uh, guide. It is saying he is God. And we as Christians need to understand that. I would say if I asked most of you, hey, is Jesus God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, we need to really, really believe that. We need to hold to that so much that it impacts our life. And here, Paul is speaking to a group of people who are questioning. I don't know. Paul is saying he is God. Secondly, Jesus is king of all creation. This is beautiful as we go through this passage. He's, he's, he's not just saying, hey, he's a, a, kind of a part of God. No, he, he is God. And, and because of that, he, he reveals his great power and he talks about his impact over creation. We see this in, in four ways. First of all, Jesus' priority over creation. What does it say in this passage? Look at verse uh, 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? There's been much debate about that term, firstborn, here in this passage. In fact, I said to you a few minutes ago that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ was created, and their proof text is what we're reading right here. They will say, 
It says he is firstborn. See, the problem is, is you have to understand not just the wording of it, but we have to understand the culture of it. And if you argue that Jesus, uh, they, they would argue that Jesus was the eldest of all of Jehovah's sons. They say he was a created being and not the co-creator with God. Now the problem is, is this, in the, in the culture and uh, understanding, the firstborn was not just a position of the first of birth. It was an uh, understanding of that which received um, all the rights of inheritance. Uh, one author put it this way, although this word can mean firstborn chronologically, it refers primarily to position or rank. In both Greek and Jewish cultures, the firstborn was the son who had the right of inheritance. He is not necessarily the first physically born. We think of an example in the Bible of uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn physically, yet Jacob is the firstborn in the sense that he received the inheritance. And so we see this term firstborn here. We're not referring to a physical birth. We're referring to that idea of one of greatest importance. We see it even mentioned in Psalms. And it says this. This is a psalm about uh, David, but yet it's a prophetic psalm about Jesus Christ. And it says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of Israel. Again, it's not pointing to birth order. It's reporting, pointing to uh, rank in this passage. When it says that Jesus is firstborn, it's saying that Jesus has priority over all creation. Jesus is top. Jesus is greatest. It's not referring to his birth. And how, how do we know that? Well, we need to continue on because uh, if you just take this alone, it, it may cause question, but if you continue on, the second thing is we need to look at is Jesus' part in crea- creation. Jesus' part in creation. Look again at verse, uh, well, let's look at verse 16. For, now this is, for is, is adding to the fact that he is firstborn. Okay? So understand that. It's not, uh, it's not a separate thought. For by him all things were created. Now, that's interesting. Because it's, it's then saying, because of this, because of the fact that we know he is uh, uh, the highest in rank, then it says, for by him all things were created. Jesus is titled firstborn out of the rank of the universe. He is the king of the universe, in other words. And, and this, this next phrase says, in all things, uh, he created all things. He's supreme above creation because in him they exist. Um, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. It's not just that Jesus was in the beginning, but he created all things. We learn as we study the Bible, and specifically as you look at the book of Genesis and we talk about creation, we learn that all persons of the Trinity were involved in the act, act of creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all had their part. The Father is presented as the architect. He determined Uh, to bring creation into existence. The Son, Jesus, brought the plan into existence. Uh, Though through His creative imagination and power, the created order exists. In a sense, He's the the foreman of the construction. 
The Spirit did the actual work. Remember in Genesis it says the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters, applying the the plans in a hands-on relationship to creation. All of them had their parts, and Jesus had his part, and he was uh, uh, the creator. Thirdly, we see Jesus' parameter of his creation. Continue on in verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created. Then it gives us the scope or the parameter of his creation. Look what it says there. In heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. As we learn about Jesus' rank and his role, we can now see the range. We, we notice there in this passage that, uh, starting in verse 15, we notice the word all, and we see that carried out as we go through here, all. Over and over again, it tells us all. In fact, four times in the next few verses, it'll use the word all. And what is the point that he's trying to make here? That word all encompasses everything. That Jesus made everything. What point do you think he was trying to make here? Jesus brought everything into existence. But in case you miss his point, he makes the same thing as he goes through and he begins to talk about what he made. Now it's interesting, he used a, a, a tool of poetry in here. Many believe that, that this passage, primarily verses 15 through uh, 20, were, were, a, were a hymn that would have been used in the early church and, and, or, or something like that. And Paul turned in there because he used a, a poetic tool in this passage. He, if you look, and he says in verse 16, what did he create? He said, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He uses a, a, a poetic uh, thing where he links together, but it's interesting how he does it. Heaven is linked to the invisible and earth is linked to the visible. So in poetic way, it would be A-B-B-A. They're connected. And he's saying in that sense, he's saying the range of what God created or what Jesus Christ created is from the heaven and the invisible to earth and the visible. So what did he leave out? Nothing. Everything that is seen, everything that is unseen, everything that is spiritual, everything that is earthly, Everything that is physical, everything that is not. Everything. He created all of it. Now, do we see as we begin to look at this that Jesus is not just some good man? You know, and oftentimes we... uh, as Christians, if we're not careful, we interact with people who, who will say, yeah, Jesus was this, that, and the other thing, but short of saying Jesus is supreme overall, we're missing it. Jesus was at, created all that exists. The fourth aspect we want to see is Jesus is the purpose for his creation. Look, if you will, back in the text, verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And I didn't even touch on that, but we're going to move on. All things were created through him and for him. Why was it all brought to pass? 
And Paul is making one final point here about this creation, and that is that the purpose for creation, the purpose of why everything came into being was for the sake of Jesus Christ. All things were created for Jesus. Because it was God's plan and God's will to exalt his son. Look what, look what is said in Philippians when, when Paul uh, is describing to them. Remember, the, prior to this is where he talks about how Jesus came and humbled himself. He, he, he is the incarnation. He became a man. But yet, it tells us at the end of the verse there, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. You know, the Bible tells us here that one day, everyone, everyone will proclaim who Jesus is. One author described it in a beautiful way this way. He said, everything exists to display the glory of Jesus. And ultimately, he will be glorified in his creation. Paul's argument in these verses may be illustrated by an artist who produces a sculpture. Originally, the idea and the details of the sculpture come from the mind of the artist. He builds the, the size, the perspective, the figures, and the emphasis desired for this statue. Then the sculpture is constructed by the artist as he and he alone can see what's in his mind. Finally, those who admire the finished work think of the artist who imagined, planned, and accomplished the work of the beauty. As long as the sculpture stands, people remember and appreciate the artist. In the same way, Jesus is the central point of all creation, and he rules over it. Why is Jesus to be first place in our life? Again, we'll expand on this more next week, but Jesus is to be supreme in everything that happens on earth. Paul made a point to teach this truth to these Colossians because of the, the heresy of the false teachers that was going on. They were confused. They were confused because the belief was Jesus could not have been God because he was man. And there is no way he could have been both. And humans are, are, are made of matter, and matter is evil. So if, if Jesus was made of matter, then Jesus is evil, then he cannot be God, which is good. Since the world is made up of matter-composed humans, then creation must be evil, and it could not have been created by God. But Paul is here to say, no, that's wrong. And he wants to show the, the church in Colossae, and, and in turn he wants to show us that Jesus was supreme in all of creation. He was the agent of creation. He created all things that exist, and they were created for his glory. But then thirdly, Jesus is the sustainer of all creation. Look at verse 17. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the creator of all things. But then verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul ends this, this thought with the functionality of this universe as it exists today. 
The Greek word he used means to tightly bound, bind things together, and I think hold together, here's a good translation, uh, but it's the idea of keeping it all together. Paul's intent was to prove that, that, that the creator, Jesus, was not just uh, an inactive participant uh, um, after creation, but he is a very active uh, part of, of, of what took place and what continues to take place. Um, this conflicts with uh, a, a teaching called deism. Uh, deism is a belief that God made the world but doesn't interrupt it with supernatural events. Uh, they would teach that God does not interfere with creation. Rather, he designed it uh, to run by infallible, uh, immutable natural laws. Uh, there was, uh, you can think of like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, some of the founders of our country believed in this idea of deism, uh, that he provided the nature so that creatures could, could live in the way they were supposed to. But that, that is not what this passage tells us. And obviously this was a problem that the church in Colossae was suffering with. That is why uh, Paul wanted the Christians to know of the involvement of the Creator in the creation on a continuous basis. Uh, Paul uses this verb, if you look in the passage in verse 17, he uses this, this verb hold, uh, which is an interesting one. It's a, it's a perfect present tense, and the idea there is it's something that continues to happen day after day after day. It's not something that happened in the past. It's something that happens continually all the time. And what it's telling us there is that Jesus Christ continues to hold the world together. Uh, it's something that occurred in the past, but it continues currently in the, in the present and in the future. That allows us to lay our heads on the pillow at night knowing that gravity will not evaporate. Imagine that. You go to sleep tonight, you wake up, you're floating thousands of miles into frigid space in your pajamas. That doesn't happen because God, Jesus Christ, holds it together. He uses uh, a gravity to do that, but He is an active part in that. Or we can know that we can sleep and know that the earth's rotation will not misalign itself and draw us closer to the sun, so uh, the, in the morning we wake up and we're toast because of the work of Jesus actively working. This is not just about laws of nature, it's about Jesus being active. Notice what it says in Hebrews. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, many people uh, will, will ask, well, when Jesus came to earth, did he give up all that power? I believe he uh, laid aside when, uh, as part of his human form, aspects. But I don't think he ever gave it up. Someone put it this way. If someone asked whether Jesus, when he was asleep in the boat, was also continually carrying along all things by the word of the power, and whether all things in the universe were being held together by him while he slept in the boat, the answer must be yes. For those activities have always been and always will be the particular responsibility of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Those who find the doctrine of incarnation inconceivable have sometimes asked whether Jesus, when he was a baby in the manger at Bethlehem, was also upholding the universe. To this question, the answer also must be yes. Jesus was not potentially God or someone in whom God would work, but truly and fully 
God with all his attributes. So as we go through life and we ask, what impact does Jesus have in my life? This passage tells us that he holds the world together. That he upholds creation, not just the creator, but he upholds creation day by day. Let me ask you this question. How many of you like oxygen? Anyone? Okay. Do you know that oxygen makes up 65% of the human body? 45% of soil, 85% of seawater, 42% of all vegetation. It is odorless, tasteless, colorless, yet is one of the most important substances without which we would not exist. For example, some of you do not want to believe this, but you could go without food for actually several weeks and still live. You can even go without water for a few days, and still live. But without oxygen, you would be dead within five minutes. Not only do we breathe oxygen, but without oxygen, we do not have water, proteins, uh, carbohydrates that we need to live on daily. 70% of the, water, uh, the oxygen in our world is made through the photosynthesis of plants. Now, this isn't a science lesson, but I want you to understand that one of the ways that Jesus holds the world together is by keeping trees and plants living on earth and producing oxygen so that we can breathe. If the plants and everything died, we would die as well. But he continues that process by holding things together. You know, we, uh, in, our, in our world today, um, a popular form of entertainment among movies and, and uh, television is end-of-world stuff. Apocalyptic type things. Uh, and I remember seeing a movie advertised a number of years ago about how this massive storm was going to come in and the whole world was going to turn to ice and we would all die. It's a little bogus. Why? Because I know who holds the world together. And it's not, it's not laws of nature. It's not, oh, the weather pattern is going to change and so we're in trouble. You know, no, it's Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that he will hold it together and he will keep it as it is and he will sustain it until he returns. The Bible talks about during the time of tribulation that great uh, things that will happen on this world. But until that time, he continues the process of holding all the world together. Now here's the thing. When we look at this passage, we understand that Jesus Christ is supreme. No one else can claim these things that I just preached. No one. There's no other religious leader that has ever lived that can claim that they hold the world together, that they created the world, and that they are the image of God. No one. Jesus Christ is is the only one that can. And so it's important for us to understand that if you do not accept that Jesus Christ is God, was involved in creation, and keeps everything flowing as it does, then you cannot believe that he is your perfect and adequate sacrifice to pay the penalty of your sins. Because if he is not all of those things, then he falls short, just like you and I. 
If He is not the God who created all things, if He is not the sustainer, if He is not the the one who is the image of God, then He is something less, which makes Him not supreme. And therefore, can we really believe in Christ? And that was the problem that, that Paul was addressing here with the people in Colossae, was that they were struggling with that belief. You see, uh, is it a big deal? You know, we live in a culture today where it talks about, you know, uh, I think this was Pastor Nate talking about this recently, that he had talked to uh, a Muslim leader and uh, all our gods are similar. No. No. Because my God, Jesus Christ, did all these things and yet came to earth to die for me. And if that is true, then the second part, which we'll talk about next week then, why don't we give him everything? If he is supreme, if he is all that the Bible says he is, then why is it that we hold back from God? Why is it that these other things have a higher priority, have a higher place? you need to come to the decision in your own life, is he supreme? Now, I I said this last week, and, and I will say it again this week, I believe in my heart that there are individuals in this room who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You don't know this supreme God. I don't know who you are, but I know it's true. And one day, this same supreme God, as we talked about this last week, this same supreme God, Jesus Christ, will stand as a judge. And he will judge the world of their sins. And there's nothing that you can do to alleviate that judgment. There's nothing you can do to get out of it. But Jesus Christ himself has done it. Isn't that amazing? That he's the judge, he's the creator, And yet at the same time, he's the the propitiation. He took your place. Have you called on him? Have you repented of your sins and in faith believed in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, do it today. If you have, then let me ask you this question. Why is Jesus Christ not supreme in your life? Why is so many other things take first place? You can repent of that today. Let's pray. God, we are thankful. We're thankful for your word, and we're thankful for this passage, Lord. We know that none of us are worthy of Jesus. None of us are worthy of, of his love. None of us are worthy of his sacrifice. None of us are worthy of his sustaining us day in, day out. But yet he does it. Not even for our glory, it's for his. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be people who who believe who Jesus is and that we give our lives over to him. Lord, we thank you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.